1 to 6, we're looking at Christ's letter to the church of Sardis. When you have that, please stand with me out of respect for God's word. We're going to read this passage together, prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord this morning. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. And they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. And I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Looking at this passage, you see the Lord Jesus is addressing a church that seems very active, has a reputation that it's alive, but it's actually dead, he says. As I was studying the passage this week, I also thought about a a biography that I'm currently reading on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor and theologian who made a courageous stand against Nazi Germany and the power of Hitler in World War II. It was a stand that cost him his life. Reading through the biography, it was, uh, it was shocking, interesting, just to notice the way that Hitler came into power so quickly, so unexpectedly, swept into power in 1933, and much of Germany was enthralled by him. They really viewed him as the savior of the nation, They viewed him as the one who was going to kind of undo all of the reproach they felt from what other powers had done to them after World War I. And, of course, Hitler made great promises, and he sought to set up uh, his kingdom, his Third Reich, really, in every sphere of German life. And that included the church. Bonhoeffer, again, he's a, a pastor, he's a theologian, he's also evangelical. He's come to faith in Christ. He believed the gospel It was really encouraging to read uh, how clearly he saw the threat of Hitler and understood what it meant for the gospel and for the churches in Germany. At the same time, it's really been tragic to read how quickly those churches, the churches in Germany, succumbed to the seduction of Nazi propaganda and leadership. So how is it possible just a few months after Hitler ascends to power that the German church, this is the, the church of Martin Luther, embraces a a Nazi gospel, a a Nazi bishop, the idea that those who are ethnically Jews should not be a part of the German church. How is that possible? Well, it was possible for this reason. Because the churches of Germany had, by and large, ceased to be churches a long time before that. The end of the 19th century, so the 1800s, Germany was really kind of the home of liberal theology. Uh, It was the home of those theologians who were systematically undermining the ability of the people to look at God's word as trustworthy, true, reliable, 
relevant for their lives. And of course, here's the problem. When you abandon the gospel as a church, the glory departs. The Spirit of God departs. And so there is no power anymore. You have a church, but you have a church in name only. And so the German churches were not able to resist the coercive force of Nazi Germany because the glory had departed. There was no power remaining. Another way to say this is to say that although the churches in Germany in the 1930s looked alive, they, they were still meeting on Sunday morning, they were still involved in theological education, they were still involved in social programs that were religiously based. Even though they were active, they were in fact dead. There was no gospel there. There was no true gospel ministry there there was no power, and so they were no match for Hitler and the Nazi state. But of course, it's not only the German churches of the Nazi era, from prosperity-preaching megachurches with tens of thousands of people in attendance every Sunday morning to mainline churches across the nation where the gospel is no longer preached. Many churches seem large and active. They have a reputation for being alive, but they're dead. They have abandoned the gospel, so they have ceased to be what they profess to be. In fact, our passage for study this morning, it teaches us that it is possible for any church, no matter how active, no matter how, uh, how thriving it may currently be spiritually, if it leaves the gospel behind, if it leaves the word of God behind, it will, it will just dry up on the vine and it will die. And so this is a passage that's incredibly important for this church because we want to be a healthy church. Uh, we want the Holy Spirit to be here in power as we gather together as a church. We want the gospel to go forward. We want people who don't know Jesus to come to know him, to know that he is king and savior and Lord. We want God to, to in his kindness, use this church. And so we need to be on guard against any kind of spiritual decline, any kind of loss of the gospel in the life of our church because we want to be a God-glorifying, healthy local church. And we're going to talk about that together this morning. So we're continuing our study in the book of Revelation. We've been working through chapter 2. Now we're in chapter 3, looking at these seven letters that the Lord Jesus wrote to these seven churches of the first century, kind of Asia Minor. This is the region of Turkey. This is the Roman province of Asia in the first century. And these were Real churches, as we've said, they're just as real as this church is today. And Jesus knew these churches, and he spoke directly to these churches about ways that they were serving him and about ways that they were failing to serve him. You see, Jesus cares about his churches. And last week, we saw that a church must not tolerate sin. In the name of love, oh, it's loving and kind, how can I bring that up? In the name of love, we must not tolerate sin, but we must instead confront sin in order to try to rescue the one who's caught in sin. And so that that sin doesn't spread through the life of the church and the glory departs and the spirit is grieved and the church slowly dies. Saw that last week. This week we're looking at this letter to the church of Sardis in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. And again, this outwardly seems to have been an impressive looking church. Uh, they had a reputation in the community. 
for being vibrant, for being alive, for being a church, but spiritually the church was dying. You could say it's on its last legs. Jesus looks at this church, and even though there's a few believers there, we're going to see that there's a few believers in the midst of this, this assembly that calls itself a church, the Lord Jesus pronounces them dead and calls them to repentance. Our time together, we're going to study this passage using four points, if you're taking notes, four points from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. First, we're going to see the Lord's correction in verse 1. And second, we're going to see the Lord's commands there in verse 2, and the first part of verse 3. Then we're going to see the Lord's warning in the second part of verse 3. And finally, we're going to see Christ's promise, or the Lord's promise there in verses 4 to 6. Let's look at that first point together. Christ correction, verse 1. Just look at the first part of that verse, kind of to set this up. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. So now this is, of course, the fifth time that the Lord Jesus has given this command to write. He's addressing the angel of this church, but of course he's speaking most directly to the church as a whole. And for its part, the city of Sardis had been one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. It was founded around 1200 B.C. It was located about 50 miles uh, east of Ephesus. It eventually became the capital of the Lydian Empire, and it was known for vast wealth. Gold, a precious commodity, was found there in abundance. The people learned how to mine that gold, indeed to separate it from silver. Sardis became the place where gold and silver were first minted as coins. And Sardis also claimed to be the place where they, they said that they were the first to discover how to dye wool. This was a very wealthy place. Uh, the last of the Lydian kings was a man named Croesus, and he lived on in the minds of many as one of the wealthiest kings to have ever lived. The city of Sardis was also uh, very powerful in the sense that it was constructed in an easily defensible place. It was built on top of the mountain, Mount Molis, kind of on an acropolis at the top, and, and three sides of that mountain were 1,500 feet kind of sheer cliffs that were incredibly difficult to climb up. And the part of the and part of that Acropolis that gave access to the city was easily guarded. And so many people believed that this city could not be taken. It couldn't be defeated. And for much of its history, that was the case. But there were two times in the history of the city that it was sacked by enemies. It was sacked in 546 BC by the Persian king Cyrus II, and then again in 214 BC, it fell to the Greek ruler Antiochus III. Why? Because the city guard became complacent, and they didn't watch. They weren't careful. And by the end of the first century, the glory days of Sardis were in the past. The city was still wealthy, but it was much less wealthy than it had been. It was a religious city. It was devoted most especially to the worship of the goddess Diana, also known as Artemis or Sybil, kind of worshipped throughout that part of the world. But it was also zealous for the worship of the emperor, and there was a, a contingent of Jews there as well in the city. We don't know how the gospel first came to Sardis. Uh, we, we guess, we think that it's very likely that it, it came to Sardis when Paul was ministering in Ephesus pretty close by. That's in Acts 19. Sadly, just a few decades later, a few decades after that, this city is, it's on its, uh, this city, I'm sorry, this church is on its last legs, spiritually speaking. So there's, there's religious activity there's a lot of stuff going on in the church, but there's no spiritual vitality. You know, the reality isn't there. There's like the husk of the crumb, but there's, there's nothing there. There's no spiritual life. 
Now look at how the Lord describes himself in the second part of verse 1. He says, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The phrase, the seven spirits of God there, speak of the spirit of God in his fullness. This is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who possesses the life-giving spirit of God. And I like how commentator Eldon Ladd put it. He said, the problem with the church of Sardis was spiritual death. Christ is the possessor of the Holy Spirit who alone can give life. So Christ has what this church needs. And then he also says this. He says that he's the one who has the seven stars. And that again refers us back to Revelation chapter 1. The vision of the glorified Christ where we saw there. And we saw that in the right hand of the resurrected, the glorified Christ, you have these seven stars. What are they? Well, verse 20 of chapter 1 tells us that these stars represented the angels of these seven churches. And the idea most especially with the fact that Jesus has it in their right hand is that Jesus cares for his churches. Uh, he's watching over them. He's, he's inspecting them. But when he comes to Sardis, he's grieved. And so he rebukes this church. Look at the way he rebukes them at the end of verse 1. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now, in previous letters, when the Lord Jesus says, I, I, I know your works, he would then go on to point out the ways that the church was worshiping him and serving him well, kind of the good attributes of those local churches. But there is, there's no commendation for this church. There's only correction. So what's the problem? Well, again, Sardis, the Lord Jesus says, has a reputation for being alive, which means it was active. It was probably prosperous in terms of money, like the surrounding community. We imagine that there was religious activity on Sunday, a lot of people kind of moving around there, that church. Uh, the members of the church claim to follow Jesus. They said that they follow Jesus. Many non-Christians felt particularly comfortable there. Actually, you notice as you read through this letter, there is no hint anywhere that there was any persecution or any suffering in the life of this church at all. Everything seemed just fine. The pagan Romans and the faithless Jews all seemed to get along with this church just fine. And maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe that's a sign that Satan has no problem with this church. Because it's dead. It's powerless. For all the outward activity, despite the church's reputation in the community, things were not well at Sardis. Just to stop there, brothers and sisters in this church, it doesn't matter what the community thinks of us. What matters is what Jesus thinks of us. It is his estimation of us that matters. That's what you see here. And Jesus looks at this church and he says, you're dead. Now in verse 4 and 5, we're going to see that there were a few genuine believers. They had the spirit of God. They were keeping themselves pure, we're going to say. They were trying their best to walk in holiness in a place that was unholy. They were, they were living out their Christian life in the midst of others who claimed to be Christians but were apathetic towards the gospel. That, that should be a scary thing to you if you claim to be a Christian. But then like Monday to Saturday, you couldn't care less if there's a Jesus because you're just living your life. Yeah, Jesus, he might be there. But, you know, I'm going to see him again on Sunday. Friend, that's a problem. You don't understand who Jesus is, if that's your mind. But that's what, that's what it was like. It was a church that was filled with people like that. They were more than happy to compromise. 
They were more than happy to participate in the feast. In all likelihood, they had offered sacrifices to Caesar. At least we understand the citizens didn't seem to have any problem with them being there doing what they're doing. Perhaps they even participated in the sexual immorality that characterized such idolatry. You see, the problem with Sardis is that the members of this church claimed to follow Jesus, but they had really fully adapted themselves to the luxury of the surrounding culture. They loved the world. They loved being a part of the world. They loved the pleasures of the world. You see, the church wasn't just sick. Jesus says it's beyond that. It's not just that they're sick. It's on life support. In the presence of a few genuine Christians, it doesn't change the Lord Jesus' estimation of this church. He looks at this church and he says, you are dead. No gospel, no gospel impact, just religious activity. Do you want to know how much Jesus cares about religious activity? He doesn't. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that must be central. It must be the power for everything we do as a church. You know, basically like the German churches in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's day, this church had a name, to, it was alive. It had the name of a church, but it was a church in name only. And here's the tragedy. The tragedy is that the Church of Sardis isn't alone. There are so many churches like this. Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church averages 45,000 people in attendance every Sunday. It seems alive. It seems exciting. Stephen Furtick's church elevation, it averages 26,000 people in attendance. It is definitely a, a high-energy service if you've ever seen it. The problem is both Osteen and Furtick, they teach a false prosperity gospel. Now, Furtick's prosperity gospel sounds a little more evangelical than Osteen, but when you listen to it, it's still all about you having your best life now. And so there's all of this activity. There's all of this appearance of life, but there's no gospel there's no sin, there's no repentance, there's no wrath, there's no need to turn and trust in Jesus and follow him. There's none of that. It's just, hey, this is a great way for you to have a great life. And, of course, it's not just those two churches. The same thing could be said about countless other churches, mainline churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches. So many churches across the country have a name that they are alive and yet they're not. Why? Because they don't preach the gospel anymore. Instead, they have accommodated themselves to the culture, to kind of tickling the ears, giving the people what they want to hear. And any church that's done that, that's abandoned the gospel, that has instead accommodated itself to the morality and the philosophy and the special interest of the world, it has ceased to be a true church. Jesus isn't there anymore. It's just a group of religious people gathering. And you see, it doesn't matter how active the church may be. One observation here, the spiritual death of the church usually doesn't happen overnight. And that's where I really think for Christ Fellowship, that needs to be the emphasis for us, is that we would be a people who understand that apart from the grace of God, so go we. We can lose the gospel here. It doesn't have to take long. It can actually happen rather rapidly. But most of the time, it does take time. Most of the time, it does take years because Satan likes to move by degrees. 
By the time John recorded the message to this church from the Lord Jesus, it had been several decades since the gospel had come to that, that town and that church had been planted. But now you see there's the gospel that's less important. Actually, it's not being taught. And the passion of the people for God is burning low. And of course it's going to burn low. If you're passionate about this passing world, your passion for Jesus is going to be low. That just makes sense. Uh, the pull of the world becomes stronger and stronger. The luxury, the convenience, the kind of the shininess of it all. Sin creeps into the church and people stop talking about sin and people stop lovingly confronting sin and people stop here, listen, actually caring for one another. You see, we care for ourselves so much, I'm unwilling to make myself uncomfortable to talk with you about this thing that I see in your life. So I'm actually not loving you. I'm actually loving myself by not talking with you about this issue that's in your life. And this can happen. More and more non-believers find their ways into the membership of such churches. And over time, the church dies. It's like cancer working its way through the body. How does that happen? Slowly, by degrees, you never expect it. It's working its way through the body. It's bringing death in the same way spiritual death is always over time and by degrees. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be on guard against this in our church. We must keep the gospel central. Like Jesus is king and he's Lord or he's not. If he's not Lord, we're wasting our time here. If he's king of the universe, we have nothing better to do than to give him our all, to live for him with all of our hearts. You see, it just makes sense. It just makes sense. We need to pray that our passion for God would continue to burn bright. Isn't it difficult sometimes on Sunday morning? You come to, you know your heart should be for the Lord, and yet there's this coldness. It's difficult. Brothers and sisters, we need to fight to be passionate about Christ. We need to be praying that we be passionate about our God. We need to be asking the Holy Spirit of God to continue to let that burn brightly in our hearts. We need to reject worldliness and sin. We can't poison our souls from Monday to Saturday and expect that we're going to love Jesus on Sunday morning. That's not going to happen. And we need to, and this is important, as best we can, ensure that the membership of this church is regenerate. And what I mean by that is that those who are part of this church are really born again. Because we don't expect people who aren't born again to act like people who are. And a church is a gathering, it's a community of people who have been transformed by God. Transformed by Jesus. Transformed by his gospel. We need to, to guard that. So may God help us do it. There's a second point. Look at Christ's command. Verses 2 in the first part of verse 3. Be alert. And strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Now, in these two verses, you see five kind of rapid-fire commands that the Lord Jesus gives this church. Be alert, strengthen, remember, keep it, and repent. It's, it's like the, the church is unconscious, and the Lord Jesus is kind of shaking the church, saying, wake up. Understand your situation. And really what he's doing is he's giving them the path to revival. He's saying these are the steps you need to take if you would be revived, if you would be strong and 
healthy again. And so in these commands, we actually have a, a game plan given to us for what needs to happen in the life of any church that's dying so that it might be revived, so that it might be strong for the Lord Jesus again. So let's look at these commands briefly, one at a time. The first command is be alert there, the first part of verse 2. Now, many of your translations say wake up. I think that's a valid translation. The ESV has it that way. The NIV has it that way. The NASB has it that way. But the Greek phrase, it literally speaks of being watchful. And I think that would have resonated with the people of Sardis because two times in the history of that city, it was by not being watchful that the city was sacked by its enemies. And Jesus is really telling this church, be alert, be watchful, be on your guard, snap out of it, pay attention, wake up and realize the, the deadly situation you are in. And there's a second command, strengthen what remains, and which is about to die. You know, that phrase, what remains there, implies that at some point in the history of this church, there was faithful gospel ministry going on. This is what remains of that faithful gospel ministry. They'd been serving the Lord, but they had not continued to faithfully serve the Lord. And so kind of the, the flame of spiritual grace in the church was burning low. Now, that is not how it seemed. In the eyes of those who were looking into the church, it didn't seem like that. It, it seemed like this is a, a, a vibrant, active church. Look at all the ministry that's taking place. Look at all the nice things that these nice Christian people are doing for the world. They're doing so much. But all of that ministry in the eyes of the Lord was just an outward show. So what's the solution? Jesus says they needed to strengthen what remains. Uh, they needed to do again what they had done before. They needed to begin to serve the Lord well again. How would they do that? Well, there's a third command. Remember then what you have received and heard. How is Sardis going to move forward? The way they're going to move forward is by, by looking back. They're going to remember now. They have to look back. They have to remember what they've received and heard. What's that? It's the gospel. It's the truth of God's word that they've received. Uh, it's the truth of God that they've received, that they trusted in at the first, this truth that gave them spiritual life. They need to remember that, and they need to remember that religious activity is not what makes a church vibrant. What makes a church vibrant is when the Holy Spirit of God takes the gospel and the life of a people, and he makes them like Jesus. That's it. Yeah, that's what ministry is. Ministry is us sharing the, the life-giving truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit taking that and conforming us to the, the image of Christ so that we're more like him. And it's not only the ministry of elders in the church to do that. It's a, actually, it's the ministry of everyone in the church that we would be speaking the truth of God's word into one another's lives, remembering what Christ has done for us, remembering the truth of God's word, and rooting ourselves in it. That's what Sardis needed to do. It needed to root itself once again in the gospel. And then there's this fourth command at the first part of verse 3 there, keep it. So you see, it's not enough to just remember the truths. It's not enough to just know the truths. You have to keep it. You have to obey it. You remember the truth of the gospel, and you obey God's word. Because, brothers and sisters, God does make demands on our lives. He does, because Jesus is a king. He's not a pathetic king. And he's saying, if you're going to live for me, it's going to look this way. It's not that we're ever earning favor with Jesus. No, if you're a Christian, you've received that as a free gift. 
But if he is your king, you want to live for him. You want to follow him. And indeed, he has taught us what is good. And then, of course, there's this fifth command there, and repent. You see, the, this, this command shows us that the church of Sardis didn't need to do new actions only. They did need to obey, but, but they needed a new heart to go along with it which means that they needed to be grieved for their sin so that they could turn away from that sin and instead pursue Christ and pursue those things that would be glorifying to him. So here's this process. If this dying church is going to be restored to health, it must realize its desperate spiritual condition. It must be alert. And then it must return to faithful service to God. It must strengthen what remains. And the way it will do that is by remembering the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word and obeying God's word and doing that from a heart that is repentant before the Lord, acknowledging that we need him. Now, as I thought about this process, as I thought about you know, kind of the Lord Jesus giving this prescription to this church, I thought about our own church. I think it's a really important thing that all of us would do. Uh, is Christ's fellowship dying I mean, that, that is the question that this letter raises. Is Christ's fellowship spiritually dying? Are we a dying church? By God's grace, I do not believe we are. I do not believe we are a perfect church. We certainly don't have a perfect pastor. We don't, in fact, we don't have six perfect pastors. We have six of us. Uh, and as much as I love you, you know, we don't have a perfect membership. We are all sinful and flawed. So it's not to say that there's no sin. It's not to say that there's no, no room for us to grow. There's plenty of room for us to grow. If you know your own heart, brother and sister, you know there's tons of room for us to grow into conformity to Christ as a church. And yet, by God's grace, I do not believe that this is a dying church. Many of you have come here and you've said something along the lines of, of there's life here. And praise God for that, that you could sense, you know, there's, there's life here. Praise God for that. But here's the requirement of this letter is that we would guard that life. That we would be grateful for the life the Lord Jesus has given us and we would guard it. And indeed, that we would seek to promote it more. Uh, that is the church, we would be more and more glorifying to the Lord. Uh, we want to be a healthy church. We want to be a healthy church. How's that going to happen? How are we going to grow to be more and more, by God's grace, healthy and vibrant as a church? Well, if we're going to uh, grow in health, if we want to grow in health, we must pursue those things that give health, that the Holy Spirit uses to bring health to a church. And, and, and I want us to work through this briefly, but, but Mark Dever, who's a pa former pastor of mine and, and uh, some of you as well, but... He wrote a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And, and in this book, he gives nine characteristics of a healthy church. And I think they're worth hearing because these are the things we should be pursuing. The first characteristic of a healthy church is expositional preaching. Now, what is expositional preaching? Expositional preaching is preaching that makes the point of the passage the point of the message. In other words, it exposes what God has said, and it makes the truth of God's word the central thing, not the opinion of some man. No matter how charismatic that man may be, we want God to speak to us because it's his word that gives life, not the opinions of some person. There's a second characteristic. A healthy church teaches gospel doctrine. You see, how we think about God and salvation matters for how we live. Oh, just think about it this way, just one little example. If you think that God is mad at you all the time, you're going to be a miserable Christian. You just are. Why? Because you don't understand the gospel. What do I mean? I mean the gospel says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
It says God has poured out all of his wrath on Christ, every last drop. There's not a, a, a drop for any of us who are in Christ. So God is not in heaven angry, even though, brothers and sisters, listen, even though we're often pathetic. You see, he knows we're pathetic. He's aware of that. He knew the deal he was getting from the beginning. But he has given his son for us to pay for all of our sin, and he knows this. He is at work in us to complete the good work that he has begun, and the day is going to come when you and I are going to stand before him, and we will no longer be pathetic. Praise God. Why? Because his grace will have been sufficient to bring us safely home, and we will be perfectly like Jesus, which is what we long for. Now, if the the gospel doctrine of this church is taught and put forward clearly, what that will do is it will set us free from all of the snares of the enemy who's constantly trying to get us caught up in ourselves, either by being too proud or by being too miserable, still selfish, and it will set us up to walk with Jesus day by day and be a church that's a vibrant church. May God do that. There's a third characteristic. A healthy church has a biblical understanding of conversion and evangelism. Now, there's a need for balance here because the Lord Jesus, our God, he is sovereign in salvation. God is sovereign. When the Holy Spirit moves in a person's life, he moves and he draws that person to salvation. And yet the Bible also teaches that we have a vital part to play in sharing the gospel. And so we should be sharing the gospel with as many people as possible because the gospel is good seed and we want the Holy Spirit of God to do the good work that he does through his gospel. A fourth characteristic, a healthy church has a biblical understanding of church membership. We live in a culture that is awash in individualism and self-expression. You're only an authentic person if you are exposing everything in your heart to other people. And by the way, it's all about you. And you should be living your life for you. And you should be promoting yourself in every possible way. We live in that kind of culture. Here's the problem. Christianity isn't like that. We have been saved not to live on our own. We have been saved to live in a, in a community uh, of people who follow Jesus. This is the local church. Uh, we, we're meant to be rooted in a gospel community where we know brothers and sisters and can help them to heaven, and they know us, and they can help us to heaven as well and really what are we doing at Christ Fellowship? We're trying to help one another to heaven, and we trust that the Lord Jesus is going to do that good work through this church. Number five, a, a healthy church has a biblical understanding of church discipline. It is inevitable that sin will manifest itself in the body. Just read any, any you know, book in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus, by his spirit, he's dealing with sin in the church, or God is dealing with sin. It will manifest itself. But healthy churches know that church discipline is the tool that the Lord has given us to purify the church, to call that erring brother or sister back from their sin, and to purify the church in that way so that we can continue to be a healthy church. A sixth characteristic, a healthy church has a biblical concern for discipleship and growth. So the mission the Lord Jesus has given us is to make disciples. Uh, and in part, that means you helping me follow Jesus. You speaking the truth of God's word into my life and, and you pointing out ways that I'm not, I'm not really doing that. And, and then you encouraging me for ways that I am. And, and then it's my role as well to do that for you, to help you grow and become more like the Lord Jesus. So we want to grow, but we're not particularly concerned if we're talking about numerical growth. 
We want to be a healthy church in the sense that we're seeing growth where people that are part of this church are becoming more and more like Jesus. And we can just trust God with the numerical growth and the financial growth. You know, we can just trust him with that. Let's just focus on helping one another love our God. And we can trust God with everything else. Number seven, a healthy church has biblical leadership. Now, the Bible teaches that leadership in the church is to be shared in a plurality that is more than one. It's a plurality of, of spiritually qualified men, not bound up in one CEO-type leader who has all authority. That's not a biblical model. And it matters. It really matters. It matters for so many reasons. One reason is because I don't actually possess all the gifts of the Spirit as a pastor. Uh, I need other brothers that have different giftings, different leadership styles, different experiences that can, can help me where I'm weak, and they need the same thing. And actually, it's broader. It's even broader. We need you guys to speak into our lives and love us and help us be faithful under-shepherds of the Lord Jesus. A biblical leadership is a leadership that is not marked by demanding its way, but is marked by servant leadership, laying down its life for the good of others, following the example of the Lord himself. An eighth characteristic, a healthy church has a biblical understanding and practice of prayer, and prayer is simply evidence of humility before God. It's just the acknowledgement that we can't do this, that only Jesus builds his church. No one else can do that. Only the Lord Jesus builds his church, and that's what he's doing, and we need him to help us do that, and so we pray. And then a ninth characteristic, a healthy church has a biblical understanding and practice of missions. Oh, God's heart is for the nations. It's for the nations, all nations. You know, America's a nation. Praise God. We're part of this. We want the gospel to be spread among every people, tongue, tribe, and nation. We want everyone to hear about Christ. We know that the Lord is at work calling his people to himself. And so uh, a healthy church is a church that has a heart like God's heart. And God's heart is for the nations. I've never seen a church be hurt by investing in missions. I've never seen it. I don't think I ever will see it. I think the Lord honors that. I don't think we'll ever see that. If these characteristics sound familiar, if you've seen them here in some measure, well, let's just praise God for that. And let's pursue it more. These are the things that help a church be healthy, vibrant, vital. And these are the things we need to pursue together if our church is going to bring glory to God. If you're a member of Christ Fellowship, you must realize that you have a job to do. The job you've been given is to help this church be healthy. The job we've been given is not only the role of the elders to help others grow, it's the job of every church member. So if you're a member of the church, don't just come and watch, be involved. Participate. I praise God for the way you do this, but let's just do it more and more, right? Be involved, participate, use your spiritual gifts. It's an amazing thing. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're born again, you have been given spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit of God intends to use you in particular ways in the lives of others in this church and elsewhere to help other people become like the Lord Jesus. You must use those gifts. So pray and encourage others. And let's pursue health together so that we never hear the Lord Jesus say, I have not found your works complete before me. And you know, if you've been at Christ Fellowship for a long time and you've been attending for a long time, consider 
becoming a member of the church. Consider locking arms with us. We'll just tell you up front, we're not a perfect church. We'll tell you up front, you're going to find problems here. But you know what? We need, we need uh, everyone the Lord Jesus wants to be here to be here and to be involved. So pray about that. Ask God about that. There's a third point this morning, Christ warning. In verse 3, if you're not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. Here, this is a word of warning to the church. He's saying if you're not alert, if you don't wake up, if you don't pay attention to the spiritual danger you are in, I will come like a thief. And the idea is he's going to come suddenly, uh, and he's going to come when they are unaware. They don't know. They won't know the time in which he will come. What does it mean that he will come? Well, it speaks of judgment. What's that judgment going to look like? It's not entirely clear, but it, it probably would look like the church eventually ceasing to exist in some way. The gospel light, the light of the candle we saw in Revelation 1, it's going to be snuffed out. I wonder if we don't see a picture of Christ's judgment in the liberal churches that surround William and Mary. I know that's a direct thing to say. But there are such beautiful buildings there, aren't there? But they don't preach the gospel. There's no sin and repentance. There's no Christ is all. And precious few people go into those churches on Sunday morning. And what happens is year after year, the hair gets grayer and the congregation gets smaller. And eventually, if they don't repent, and we should want that, we should pray for that, that there be repentance in churches that have abandoned the gospel, that they turn from that, and they would cling to Christ again. But if they don't repent, eventually those churches will close. It's just simply what happens when you leave the gospel behind. One observation before we move on. Jesus' patience will one day give way to his judgment. That's what you see here. Uh, the Lord Jesus is being patient with this church of Sardis, isn't he? He's warning them. He could have come in judgment now, but he doesn't. He says, I'm going to come. Wake up. Be alert. He's giving them time because he is great in patience, but the judgment would come if they did not repent. Now, this is speaking of kind of a temporal judgment against the church in the sense that they would cease to exist, but the kind of the broader principle is true. Friends, we live in the day of Christ's patience. This is the time of Christ's patience. He is waiting. He is being patient with the world. But he says very clearly that the day is coming when he is going to come. And when he comes, it will be for judgment. Jesus says it himself. Listen to what he says. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What's he saying? He's saying life is going to be going on as it always has. And people are going to simply assume that it's going to go on and on and on forever. And when they're unaware, he's coming and he's coming for judgment. Noah's flood was fierce. Only eight people in the world survived it. His coming judgment will likewise be fierce. The question is, friend, are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus' judgment? You live in the day of his patience. 
Jesus is being patient with you right now. But he's telling you over and over, as you read through the New Testament, he's telling you over and over, the day is coming when I will come, I will judge. But are you ready? Sadly, many people aren't. This is one of the curses of sin. It's something I hope you'll listen to. One of the curses of sin is that it makes you careless about your soul. So many people are not careless about their money, right? Who isn't aware of a possible coming recession? You know, how many people have been following the headlines? You know, how many people in our culture are just watching their 401k and watching their savings right now because they know that their money, it's in danger, and they've got like this, this laser focus on trying to be as prepared as they can be. But if you were to ask them about their souls and whether or not they're ready for coming judgment, they would just stare at you blankly. They wouldn't understand the question, why is that? Because sin makes us careless about our souls. Friend, you have an immortal soul. And that means the stakes are extremely high. That means 20,000 years from now, you will either be living in endless bliss with the Lord Jesus, or you will be in endless torment forever and ever away from the presence of the Lord. That's what the Bible teaches. It's either true or it's not true. But it's not irrelevant. It's not not worth paying attention to. You see, the stakes are very high, and the Bible says, pay attention, wake up, understand, judgment's coming. Friend, it's worth you taking the time to figure out if Jesus is God and if he's coming in judgment. Friend, he is. But this is the day of his patience. And he's being patient towards you, wanting you to turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. You see, there is a way to be prepared. And the way to be prepared is to not trust in yourself, but it is to trust in the Savior that God has given. We were born... We were born sinful and separated from God. The God who created us to love him and serve him, we were born sinful. And so we didn't want to serve him from our earliest moments. Uh, that rebellion against God that we've all experienced and all of us in this room have practiced at some point in our lives, it looked different for different people. For some people, it looks like a hatred of God. For some people, it looks like a general apathy towards God. He might exist, he might not exist, but I don't care. I'm just trying to make money and do well for my own life. For some people, it looks like excessive religion. Like, they're just going to be as religious as they possibly can be because they're going to earn their way to heaven. They're going to do it. They're going to be better than everyone else. All of it is a rejection of God. Why? Because nowhere in the Bible does God say, you should be as religious as possible, and then I'll welcome you into heaven. What does it say? It says, repent. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says, the test has already been taken. You've already failed. That's true of me as well. What hope is there for sinners like us? The way to be prepared for coming judgment, friend, is today to put your trust in the Savior that God has provided. Who's that? It's Jesus. Uh, God himself came into this world. The eternal Son of God came into this world as a man to live a perfect life. Why? Because you and I have failed to live a perfect life. Uh, we have not honored the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and uh, mind, and strength. We've not loved him in those ways. Uh, we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Instead, we've kind of put ourselves at the center. Jesus never did that. Just read the accounts of his life, right? If they made this up, who's the person that can make it up? Who's the person that can write down things that for 2,000 years have mesmerized generations with words that are the wisdom of God? Who's just making this up? Friends, he's God. And that is such good news because he came to die. He came to sacrifice himself 
on the cross, bearing in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And he rose from the dead. And now the way to escape the coming judgment of God is to turn from your sin and put your hope in Christ and Christ alone. And what does it look like? It looks like what you're doing right now. You're sitting in a chair. What does that mean? It means you're putting all of your weight on that chair. You're trusting that chair to hold you up. That's what believing in Jesus means. It means you put all of the weight of your soul on him and him alone. You trust in his righteousness, his perfect work, his law work of obeying all that the Father told him to obey, his perfect sacrificial death on the cross, that it was sufficient to cover all of your sins. Some people believe that they've sinned so much that God can't forgive them. That's a lie from hell. Jesus is infinitely valuable, and if you will trust in him, he will forgive you. He will welcome you. And we pray that you will do that today. If you want to talk with people, about, we'd, we'd love to talk with you more about that. We'd love to read the Bible with you and, and just study what it says about how, how you can be saved. A fourth point, Christ promise, verses 4 to 6. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they're worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. What does Jesus do in verse 4? He points to the, the few faithful ones in the church. He knows them. He knows them by name. He knows how they've lived. These are ones who'd actually trusted in him. They were the ones who hadn't compromised with the surrounding culture. They hadn't defiled their clothes by being involved in idolatry and sexual immorality. What would their reward be? Well, they had walked with Jesus in Sardis. Now they're going to walk with Jesus in heaven clothed in white. Their partial holiness in this life is going to be met by perfect holiness in heaven as they walk with the Savior forever and ever. And Jesus says, because they're worthy, does that mean they've earned it? No, it means they have received a perfect standing in Christ, perfectly righteous in him, and they have demonstrated that salvation by the way they have lived. They'd walked in obedience to King Jesus by his grace. And then in verse 5 and 6, Jesus concludes this letter by giving a word of promise to the one who conquers. Now, in the context of Sardis, the one who conquers is going to be the one who resists the pull of the war of the world, who doesn't defile his clothes by being involved in sin, but instead follows Jesus. But more broadly, the one who conquers is the genuine Christian. This is the one who truly trusts in Jesus and follows him throughout his or her life. And notice what Jesus promises to do. I love this about these letters at the end. There's so many promises, and it's it's for you, brother or sister. All right, these promises are for you this morning if you're trusting in Christ. The first one is that the one who conquers would be dressed in white clothes. This is a, re a repeat of verse 4. It's the idea, that the white clothes there, it speaks of the perfect holiness and purity that we will be characterized by forever and ever and ever. And then in verse 5, kind of the second part of the middle part, Jesus tells the one who conquers that he would never erase his name from the book of life. Now, in John's days, the rulers would keep a, a list of the citizens of their kingdom or the citizens of the city. Uh, but those who died or those who committed a, a great crime would, would be erased from that list. And, and that's kind of a picture of what this is. The book of life is this kind of record. It's a record of the people of God of all ages. 
All of their names are written on that list. And what does Jesus do? I'll never, it's a strong word, I'll never erase your name. It speaks of security. The Lord Jesus will never erase your name. It speaks of security. And then there's a third promise, and it's even more than security. Look at the end of verse 5. Jesus promises to honor those who conquer. I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, many had professed to follow Jesus. And Sardis, yeah, I'm a Christian, absolutely. But they denied him by their life. They denied him by what they loved and what they lived for and what they participated in. You see, they were Christians in name only, but those who were faithful to publicly acknowledge Jesus both with their lip and their life, Jesus says he would acknowledge them before his Father in heaven. And is there anything more imaginably wonderful than thinking that one day we will stand before the very throne of God and the Lord Jesus will stand beside us and say, this belongs to me. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. This is the promise the Lord Jesus gave in his earthly ministry. We read it this morning. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Now, there's a good word about evangelism there. But we're going to save that for another sermon. But what I want us to focus on is what good news to think that the day is coming when Jesus will acknowledge us. What grace. Verse 6, Jesus concludes the letter with this familiar call to pay attention. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So three promises, being clothed in holiness, being eternally secure, and being honored by Jesus before his heavenly Father. One encouragement flowing out of this, our thirst for holiness will one day be completely satisfied, right? If you're a genuine Christian, you long to be holy. You, you just do because... Because God has given you the spirit that longs for that. But we're often disappointed by our performance, aren't we? We don't live up to our own standards, much less the standards that's been put for us in God's word, even though we long to do it. I, I love how John Newton put it. We try to follow the pattern of holiness that Christ has left for us in the same way that a child who's learning to write will try to follow the lines that his or her mother writes out for him. But Satan in our own hearts kind of jog our hands, don't they? We're trying to follow Jesus, but then mess up. This passage teaches us that the day is coming. We're going to be clothed in white forever and ever and ever and ever. And so every effort we make towards holiness is a good effort. It's an effort in the right direction. It glorifies God, and it's a picture of what we will one day be. So may we pursue it. We don't know, in conclusion, how the Church of Sardis responded to Christ's letter. It's possible, though, there was a prominent theologian named Melito who served as a faithful pastor of this church at the end of the second century. And so it's possible that they did respond, uh, that they did heed Christ's warning. Sometimes the Lord Jesus graciously revives churches who are right on the edge. He does that in his grace sometimes. Still, this letter is a warning for us, isn't it? Uh, we want to be a healthy church. We want to be a, a living church. We want to be a church that's more than a church in name only. And so we must be on guard. We must be alert. And we must follow the Lord Jesus with all we have. And may God help us do it. And let's pray.